attention sharp, pointed, and insightful. This is Spacey on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. When questioned about whether or not they knew they were scamming the system, many illegals replied they were aware, but that it was easy and they may as well take advantage of it. And the IRS was also aware of this problem the entire time, but did nothing to stop it. This type of lawsuit, it's really exactly what President Trump predicted when he declared a national emergency earlier this week. It was filed in federal district court in San Francisco on the same day as hundreds of protests nationwide. My point is that if you look at what we've already outlaid, we have 120 odd miles that are already under construction or already obligated, plus the additional funds we have and that we're going to outlay, you're gonna look at a few hundred miles. And now, Stacey Washington. Uh, yeah. So, I, I, I sometimes I, I, when we go to the break, I'll like dip into my email box or I'll look on the comments and I'll see people getting really upset about something that I've said. And it's, it happens in real time. So it's pretty interesting. Um, I see people getting upset. Someone's on, on one of the streams saying, I'm, then I, you know, screaming in all caps about me being a liar. And so I was looking for a response as to what it is that I've lied about here on the show. I think uh, one of the things I think is really fascinating um, is that when we do share information like this on the show, a lot of people will say, oh, wow, I didn't know that. Or, oh, wow, a resolution. And now that's the primary reason why when I heard this audio, I was like, wow, this is actually really good news. Um, anytime we can save taxpayers money and and make our government, it essentially makes it smaller because there's less fraud, waste, and abuse. That's a good thing. It's a really good thing for us. Um, so let's go to Kathy in Michigan. Hey, Kathy, thanks for calling the show today. Stacy. Yes. I am sadly ashamed that um, apparently we're from one of the states that is entering this lawsuit against the state of emergency, which I 100% agree with that Trump enacted. And, you know, there's so many other expenses with illegal immigration that isn't addressed. I work in an emergency room, and I can't tell you how much I see medical care given that I know is not going to be paid for out of the patient's pocket because they're, they don't have insurance. They're not a legal citizen here. <laughs> well... So, you know, I, you know what they say about you cut one head off a snake and 10 more will appear. Um, it, it is kind of a game of whack-a-mole, but I just take encouragement. If he can fix this issue, then he could definitely fix the issue that you're talking about. But the biggest fix to all of it is to simply build the wall and start using E-Verify while we can. While, while there's a Republican president, E-Verify should be used and the penalties should be applied. And that would stop a lot because you can't you can't do that if you're not here. You know what I mean? Like we have to figure out how to make out how to make it simple. Absolutely, I still can't believe how many people, just my acquaintances, that are doing the mantra: walls don't work. Look at but, jail. Look at houses. They work. Not only do they work, if walls don't work, why do human beings live in houses? I mean, it, there, there is, if walls don't work, then houses are obsolete and so are office buildings and any structure, barns where we keep animals. If walls don't work, then what, how do we keep, you know, animals from leaving our property and wandering off, especially when we're talking about some of the livestock that's really, really expensive and valuable. Of course, walls work. It's, it's just a way of people parroting. 
Go on. I guess the easy solution is too easy for the highly educated liberals. <laughs> well, they say we're simpletons and we're hicks because we're out in the middle of the country. But um, there are some things that anyone can understand. And uh, yeah, except liberals, anyone but liberals. Thanks for calling the show. I really appreciate you calling in, Kathy. Uh, Gloria, thank you for calling into the show today. Thank you, Stacey, for all that you do. I really appreciate that. And you are right on about walls, uh, you know, protecting us in houses and all that, too. But I called because I was appalled. My neighbors are uh, aliens, and they're working on becoming legal, and they're doing their best to live uh, legal lives as much as they can, being illegal to begin with. But they uh, had tax preparers tell them that they could write off their parents and grandparents and whoever back in Mexico. And I was appalled, and I read the part of the instructions for um, who you can claim as a dependent, and it's true, or it certainly implies it. It's not clear, 100% clear. But, you know, if somebody's in Mexico and they're not in your household, you can still write them off as your dependent, even if they are not living with you. That's appalling to me, in addition to the fraud, you know, the out-and-out fraud by uh, people coming over here and perpetrating it, uh, you know, to get tax refunds and all. Absolutely. Thank you, Gloria, for calling and for, for sharing that. I So she's right. And tax preparers will tell you this because it's within the law. So... If it's lawful, even if the tax break sounds illegal or if it sounds like something that is, you know, that you should that you're doing that you're going to get in trouble for, if it's in the tax code and it's lawful and it's permissible, meaning they've been permitting it over the course of some years, setting a precedent within the IRS, what they will accept, tax preparers will tell you to take it. Now, it depends on who your tax preparer is. Our tax preparer will say, yes, yeah, some people try that, but if that if you get discovered doing that during an audit, you may have a problem. And whenever she would say to us, you may have a problem, we took that to mean that we wouldn't want to do that. And so we, I, I just, I recommend to people that if, so if you're not breaking the law initially, in other words, if you're in the country illegally, then pretty much everything you're doing when you're interacting with the government after that is you partaking in something illegal because you're flouting the law. You're having a baby here, but you're here illegally. So how is your baby a natural born citizen? Because they were born here, but you're not an American. Neither you nor your spouse are Americans. So you're basically coming here so that you can commit fraud to steal citizenship for your child. And, and we discussed yesterday on the show how important that is. How even if you come here and you immigrate here lawfully and you do everything right and then you get involved in some criminal enterprise and convicted of a felony, then you're subject to deportation. A, an American citizen is not. You can commit all the crimes you want. You can spend your whole life in and out of prison and you can go to jail and you can come back out. You're never going to be deported for that. There's nowhere for anyone to send you. You belong here with your criminal self. That's not the same thing for immigrants. And so that is why we should value this more. And that is why when we hear people saying silly things like walls don't work, we, we know they're nincompoops. We know their eyes have been blinded to the truth and they're unable to process the truth. And some of what they say is just meant to inflame you or, or rile you up to make you feel terrible about what you're talking about, uh, which is the truth. And anybody who's currently on one of the streams saying that I've lied about something, please make sure to 
post up what I've lied about. That would be so good. Post what I've lied about, and then we will uh, go from there. Because uh, I'm, I always like the challenge. I like to be able to say, oh, you know, um, I, I like to see what it is that you think that we're disagreeing about, and then I like to go and do a little bit of looking around. Now, if you're just coming on to call names and stuff, then I'm not going to waste my time looking stuff up to share with you because it's a waste of my time. So now I want to go to Stephen Miller. This is such a good piece of audio because he brings up a couple of topics that don't get covered on the mainstream news media. And if the mainstream news media was doing their job and covering these issues, then Americans would know about it and they would say, as much as I think walls are medieval, I still think we need one because look at what he just said about what's happening with these people. And of course, yesterday's biggest untold story, because everybody had to talk about Jesse Smollett, including me, biggest untold story is that we didn't have... Um, we didn't have anybody talk about the fact that there was an image from one of the migrant processing centers down at the southern border, and there's just like, there it's overwhelmed. The center is completely overwhelmed by the number of people who are there. As the president says, it's an invasion. But listen to St Stephen Miller here. It's number four. Well, as you know, when George Bush came into office, illegal immigration total doubled from 6 million to 12 million by the time he left office. That represented an astonishing betrayal of the American people. And I'm not going to sit here today and tell you that George Bush defended this country on its southern border because he did not. Now, Back then, 95% could be turned around in a matter of days. As a result of loopholes, activist judicial rulings, and increasing sophistication from cartels, the reality is is that more than half of people crossing the border are what we call non-impactable. They can't be turned around. And so what you see is sophisticated operations and smugglers will actually push out migrants and children and family units to divert border agents, and then because there's not secured areas with the wall, they'll then cross after the border agents have been diverted to those areas. But at a fundamental level, we could go down to the details, and, and you know, Chris, I could go down to the details as much as you want to. But the bottom line is this. Please don't. <laughs> but, the, but the bottom line is this. You cannot conceive of a nation without a strong, secure border. It is fundamental and essential to the idea of sovereignty and national survival to have control over who enters and doesn't enter the country. And we can get into the statistics. You want to talk about drugs? There's been a huge increase in drug deaths since George W. Bush and Barack Obama were in I, office. I so, again, um, if you have something that you disagree with about what he just said about the history of how this all came to be. Yes, there were a lot more people who were doing, uh, you know, coming into the country illegally back when George Bush was president, and he was really horrible about it. But the law back then allowed you to turn them around right there. Democrats saw their efforts to bring people into the country illegally thwarted, so they did some, you know, these are consent decrees and rulings from individual little judges. And so then they got a patchwork of laws together, some of them contradictory, and then they were able to say, well, see, the law here says he can come in. Well, the law here says you can't turn him around. And then just like Seton Motley was talking about last hour, did you, did you hear Seton say that when Congress cedes their power to unelected bureaucrats, unelected bureaucrats who believe in illegal immigration, who don't believe in borders, who don't believe in walls, who don't believe in laws, then they'll create consent decrees and a patchwork of little regulations that will accomplish the aims that they couldn't get done at the ballot box. And that is something that the Democrats are so good at. Besides the misinformation campaigns that they constantly engage in, whether it's them saying, I'm not telling the truth or I'm ill-informed, or whether it's them sp just, they, they blanket the airwaves with these crazy mantras. Walls are immoral. 
Walls don't work. Walls are medieval. They spend a lot of time spreading the misinformation and then people accept it. They're like, well, I mean, they, I just want to feel good about my, um, you know, I want to feel good about my, my views. I want to have views that make me feel good. I want to have views that make me popular when I go to, you know, gatherings with other people. And so they'll adopt these kinds of things because it is so much easier and simpler. Let's, let's just be real here. Can we just take off our, our, you know, our, our sweet kind conversational mode and just go, just, let's just go in. Um, it's easy to be stupid. It's easier. Being well-informed and being willing to defend your views, it's kind of tough. It, it means you have to, you know, maybe turn off your binge watching of Parks and Rec and, Spend a little time on the internet. It means you might have to pick up a book that's heavier than a paperback by Thomas Sowell and read about how some of the problems that we see here in America are the exact same problems from the exact same people groups that came here from Great Britain. They brought their problems and their bad cultural habits right here to America and replicated them. And those are the same individual people groups that you can trace to some of the same criminal behavior, uh, bad family situations, and poor culture. It, you know, you want to argue about economics. It's so easy to say, tax the rich, bleed the rich, take from the rich and give to the poor. It's much harder to pick up economics by Thomas Sowell. That big, it's a big, thick, heavy textbook. He wrote it as a book, like, you know, pundits write books, but it's so well written that it was actually adopted as a textbook by, uh, you know, colleges and universities across the country. And for the longest time, it was the economics textbook that you started off with. You had to have read that first. And in that book, it, it's a heavy lift, but it's once you get into it, you just can't stop reading it. I, I've, I've read it. it. It's an amazing book. It's much harder to pick up a book like that, read it, finish it, absorb what it said, let it soak into you, and then spend some time listening to Thomas Sowell in interviews from the Hoover Institution and Victor Davis Hanson and, and Walter E. Williams and others. It's, it's much more difficult to say, I'm going to turn this TV off, or I'm going to turn the radio off, or I'm going to you know, get over here and turn my laptop on and pull up some Heritage Foundation white papers and see what real economists say about this. That, that's, that's where the rubber meets the road. It, it, gets, it gets hard. So being stupid is really easy. Um, it's, it's, it's the easy road. And when people engage in that, then what they do is they lob bombs, rhetorical bombs at people who have done the work. And um, then it just, it's like they're holding up a sign that says, you know, stupid over here. And we all get to look and laugh. We'll be back with Justin Danhoff right after these messages. Hello, I'm Tim Wildman, president of American Family Association and American Family Radio. You know, on our spiritual heritage tour of Washington, D.C., we go to the Supreme Court. That's one of the places we go on, on day one, and we visit the inside chambers. We go to where the justices sit, and it's an amazing place to visit, the Supreme Court of the United States. We don't just look at the outside. We go to the inside and see where the justices sit and where oral arguments are heard. So that's just one of the places we visit. On one of the days, we're in Washington, D.C., and we also go to Mount Vernon, the home of George and Martha Washington. So we're going in September. June's full. September will be filling up soon. If you want more information on this Spiritual Heritage Tour, go to spiritualheritagetours.com. That's spiritualheritagetours.com. This is Viewpoints with Kirby Anderson. 
There is a new term in our political lexicon, ballot harvesting. It's a political jargon for allowing volunteers to collect absentee ballots from voters and then drop them off at an election office or polling place. The term was coined by Republicans in California as a way to suggest that this could lead to election fraud. Ballot harvesting is legal in states like California. Proponents argue that it will make it easier and more convenient for people to vote. But stop and think about this for a moment. We're allowing a person you don't know to come to your house and collect your ballot. You may not have filled it out until the person arrives, so he or she can even help you fill out the ballot, then take it to the election office or polling place. What could possibly go wrong with this? Here's another way to look at it. We're told in many TV and radio ads not to trust strangers who come to your door and try to sell you something. They may try to convince you to put on a new roof or invest in a financial scheme. We even have warnings from government officials to be careful when someone you don't know comes to your door. But if someone you don't know comes to collect your absentee ballot, well, that's perfectly fine. In California, ballot harvesting is legal, but Republicans in that state say something doesn't seem right. When 250,000 harvested ballots turned up on Election Day in Orange County and allowed a number of Democratic candidates to be elected in that county. And Democrats and Republicans point to electoral questions arising out of North Carolina where ballot harvesting is illegal. I say this is one more example of changes in the voting laws that have been proposed to make voting easier. But the possibility of mischief is too great and a good reason to prevent other states from making ballot harvesting legal. I'm Kirby Anderson, and that's my point of view. Take Kirby and the Point of View team with you on the go with the Point of View app. Search for Point of View Radio at the Apple or Google Play stores. You can download episodes of Stacy on the Right from the podcast page on AFR.net or UrbanFamilyTalk.com. Now, back to the show on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Thank you so much for being with us today on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. I'm going to get to, in the next segment, this list, top 10 accounts by number of interactions for Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Interesting breakdown here. And then um, we are also going to talk about how many people are allowing their babies, screen time for babies. You heard me right. Babies watching television. Screen time for babies watching TV is up exponentially. And I've I've mentioned this before, and I'm thinking what we probably should do is um, sometime here in the next couple of weeks have an expert on to talk about the impacts of screen time on the young developing mind, specifically newborns, infants, children below the age of two, and how important it is for parents to completely limit screen time. That also includes phones and tablets and everything for infants and babies. They don't need it. They need human interaction, looking into the faces of human beings so that they can learn how to interpret facial expressions, voice intonation, and they can learn how to bond with people. And then after that, when your child turns two um, and you can start introducing a little bit of something, how to do that without impacting their cognitive abilities. So we're going to touch on that a little bit in the next segment. But right now, it's my pleasure to welcome Justin Danhoff. He's from the Free Enterprise Institute, which is a division of the National Center for Public Policy Research. Full disclosure for the trolls out there, I am one of the co-chairs for the National Advisory Council Project 21, which is a part of National Center. 
Justin is coming on today to talk about these companies that are finally standing up to the social justice warriors and saying they have products that they're selling and that they want to continue to sell and they don't care about satisfying these kind of societal whims, whatever you call that. Justin, thank you for joining in today. Hey, thanks, Stacey. I appreciate the opportunity. Okay, so let's talk about this. Um, there's, you've written a piece, and I actually saw this editorial, No Apologies Needed by Companies Doing What They're Supposed to Do, and this is over at the Washington Times editorial board. And they're talking about these activists who buy a share or two of a stock, let's say in a gun company, and they'll go in and say, what are you going to do about uh, solving the gun crime epidemic or mass shootings when the company is not actually obligated to do anything about society's problem with mass shootings or, or what have you. The company is obligated to provide value for shareholders. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And <clears throat> interestingly enough, um, it's the, the company American Outdoor Brands Corporation, which uh, if you're not familiar with them specifically, you're probably, as a listener, familiar with Smith & Smith and West, which is one of the brands under that name. And so a group of activist investors, actually five separate investment groups, filed a shareholder resolution laying out exactly what you just said, demanding um, that they take all sorts of actions and file all sorts of reports and studies about mm -hmm. gun violence and what occurs with their products. Well, first of all, of course, they don't sell any of their guns directly. You know, life, fully licensed under federal and state law operators sell the guns. So. Mm -hmm they wouldn't even have any ability to do the reporting that was being requested of them. But I think the most important part of the editorial board's article is this. They pushed back in the SEC filings. They had a long opposition statement, and they did put out a report. But the report was all about standing up for the Second Amendment, standing up for their products, because that's their job. They have a fiduciary duty to their investors. And also... They are protecting a pillar of our Constitution as a corporation, which that isn't even their job. But that pillar of the Constitution allows them to you know, succeed as a great American business that's been around since the 1800s, by the way. But the most important part that I, I think that the editorial board hit home on really, really well, and that American outdoor brands understand better than most corporations do, and believe me, I deal with lots of companies on these issues, they write this. Efforts to improve the company's reputation among its critics would be inherently futile. Let me just read it one more time so, so the listeners really, really take this message home. Efforts to improve the company's reputation among its critics would be inherently futile. So even if they did everything that these activist investors wanted, there would be no satiating. And that's because they'd be you can't satisfy the liberal mob. This group of individuals, they're inherently <laughs> unsatisfied with, with, with every step of the way. And this is a message at the Free Enterprise Project. I've been taking to companies in almost every industry because what the Washington Times editorial is talking about here is specifically the Second Amendment and attacks on, on gun manufacturers. But we know that these activists come and they want companies to install the new Green Deal. We knew in advance of Obamacare that these activists were coming, demanding that companies support socialized medicine. It's in all areas of our economic life and our cultural life 
that these investor activists operate on the left. And they're very, very successful at what they do. The reason they went to American Outdoor Brands is because, look, after the Parkland shooting in Florida, there was numerous major companies that cut ties with the NRA or otherwise tried, otherwise did harm to the Second Amendment. Mm -hmm. And so companies are very willing actors very often in this process. What makes what American Outdoor Brands did um, so interesting is because it's so unique. It is unique to see a company actually stand up to these activists. These activists are given what they want um, more times than not. And so that's why they keep coming back to the door. And that's my message to other corporations that give in is exactly that. You're wasting your time. You're not going to satisfy them. The next, if you, if you give them an inch, they're going to come back the next time and mm-hmm. file a, a, a report asking for a mile. And so that's my message to all corporations across all industries. Don't give in. It only puts a bigger target on your back. Well, and so you articulated that so well. I, I just want to say it's not just that they'll come back asking for more. What they're trying to do is their intention is to put anything that they don't agree with out of business. So while it may look like you're satisfying them in the beginning, in the end, as you begin to lose profitability and lose you know, some of, some of your business, we saw that with there were the mass shootings that happened and then one of the businesses that made the coolers, I think it was Yeti coolers, they came mm-hmm. out and said that they didn't support um, assault-style rifles or something. They made some announcement that was really insulting to their base. And so the majority of the people who buy Yeti coolers are not people who are taking the coolers to tailgate at, at uh, you know, NFL games. They're people who use them on their boat while they're fishing or out while they're hunting. They store the deer meat in the Yeti cooler. The Yeti cooler is a part of the hunting experience. Well, people hunt with guns and bows and arrows. So the idea that they would make a statement that would go against their very core customer base was then dramatically articulated across social media as people blew the Yeti coolers up. They shot them. They burned them. They they threw them into big, huge dumpsters. Yeti cooler, I don't know that they've recovered from that, but they made it a extremely, it was like an easy to avoid error. And, and that was, they didn't, first, before they made a statement about a social issue, they didn't say, well, who are our customers? Like most of our customers are hunters. So no matter how we feel personally, we want these people to keep buying these coolers and we don't want them to destroy our brand. So we probably should just leave this alone. And I think what Outdoor Brands has done is set a new, it's almost like, you know, you got to have a standard bearer. They've gone out as a standard bearer saying, look, we know who our customers are and we're just not interested in pleasing people who aren't our customers. That's actually so logical. Yeah, it's logical. And I think one thing you hit on um, at the beginning there is really important to note because it's not just the companies specifically that the left disagrees with that they want to put out of business. It's all business. They do not believe in free market capitalism. They do not believe in any form of capitalism. They want government control of industry. Read the Green New Deal. Somehow in the Green New Deal is Medicare for all. What that has to do with energy, I don't know. But apparently to Ocasio-Cortez, that makes sense. And that's, again, what I try and drive home to these corporations, is they want to end your existence. So don't give in. Let's look at the flip side of the coin. You know, one of the greatest corporate 
suffered American evils, and I'm putting, you know, using finger quotes in the air here, has been forever ExxonMobil, one of the left's biggest boogeymans is ExxonMobil, ExxonMobil. Well, what did ExxonMobil announce in October? That they're funding a nonprofit organization to the tune of a million dollars to support a carbon tax now. I had a meeting with ExxonMobil two weeks ago about this, and I said, you're making a major mistake. They want to end your industry. They want to end your business. Why are you possibly helping them? It's such a self-defeating effort. Because you know what? One million, if you don't get the carbon tax passed through this Congress, and of course you're not going to, next year they're going to want 10 million, and then 100 million. And you're helping to sign your own death warrant. It may be death by a thousand cuts, but it's coming if you give these people what they want because they want the end of you. And, mm-hmm. you know, even a company as big as ExxonMobil doesn't get this. Well, um, I, and, and I want to point out that you have a piece. And, and thank you, first of all, before I get to that, thank you, Justin, for actually going and telling these people the truth. Because sometimes all it takes for someone who is in a position of power to do the right thing is for them to get almost inoculated by someone who knows the truth and tells it to them to kind of inoculate them and say, look, wait wait a minute, pump the brakes, just consider what you're doing here. And the other thing that uh, about Exxon that I want to point out to people, and I know I've I've talked about this on the show a few times. My husband and I took this, it was, we were supposed to go to New York and then there was a, a blizzard and we ended up in Galveston, Texas. And we were going there for the beach, but the beach in Galveston is, it's not, it's not beautiful. But what they do have is the, it's an oil rig that's been decommissioned, the Oceana. And you go on the oil rig and you learn all about how oil is in everything. Like if you are using a laptop, something in the laptop is made of an oil-based product. Your, your TV screen, your computer screen, anything that's made of plastic has oil-based products in it. And so I didn't know that. And I, I always think, oh, I know, you know, I know about that. I went in there, I came out like an oil industry expert of, of sorts. <laughs> and the oil industry is one of those things where it's so ubiquitous, it's in everything we're using, it's everywhere, that we take it for granted. It, we take it for granted the same way we take breathing air and drinking water for granted. Um, you know, we would prefer to drink coffee, right, Justin? But the fact is you can't make coffee without water, so you need water, so we should really be appreciative of the water just as much as the coffee bean. And we, we just take it for granted. And so what, there's, there's something fascinating to me about the way that these activists on the left who want to destroy industry, but they love iPhones and uh, MacBook Pros. <laughs> they love drinking custom coffee. They love, so all the things that they love, the gig economy, um, Airbnb, Uber, all the stuff they love that can't exist without the kind of innovation that they're currently trying to destroy. Now, you have this piece over at uh, Investors Business Daily, and I just... The title is Apple isn't so interested in diversity after all. And this is where you went and you you talked to these people. So we just have a couple minutes left. And I want you to tell the listeners about this because this is super important because all of us are using their products. Apple is so 100% saturation in America right now. Like even the babies, I'm going to have to talk about that next segment, how the babies are using the Apple products and they shouldn't be. Um, So what did you do there? Yeah, so uh, thanks for letting me talk about this. It's, it, it's really one of the most important initiatives we've put forward in a long time. And what I did is I filed a shareholder resolution with Apple. And it, it's called a true diversity proposal. So what the liberals in this sphere have been doing and successfully implementing at many large corporations are these board diversity proposals. And they, they mandate that for every open board seat that um, companies must interview a woman 
and they must interview an underrepresented minority. And the stated goal of their proposals is to avoid groupthink. So let's tease that out for a second. If you're interviewing a woman to avoid groupthink, that must mean you believe all women think the same thing based on their gender. I don't know about you, but I call that sexism. It is. And if you have to interview <laughs> an underrepresented minority of any specific class, that must mean you all you, you think the same that they all think the same based on their skin color. I call that racism. And so I filed a resolution with Apple. I said, look, diversity is diversity of thought. It's viewpoint diversity. It's what you believe on the inside. It's your ethos. It's the content of your character. It's who you are. It's not what you look like. And in this day and age, when companies are getting, and Apple is you know, one of the leaders in this, getting super political on almost every issue, one area of diversity that seems to be lacking, especially in Silicon Valley, is ideological diversity. So I asked them to, when they're nominating new members for the board, I didn't mandate like the left did with their proposals. I just suggested that Apple might want to consider interviewing people from a diverse ideological set of folks and beliefs. And not everybody thinks the same thing. Because how do you avoid groupthink? Well, gee, my idea is you have people that actually think differently. So somebody in the room is asking critical questions when companies are getting involved in politics. Apple used its high-priced legal team to petition the federal government to try and get my proposal off its statement twice. And I beat them. <laughs> so on March 1st, the true board diversity proposal will be voted on at Apple shareholder meeting. And if you are an investor in Apple of any kind, I ask, I ask for you to vote and tell the company that there is merit in diversity of thought, in viewpoint diversity, not just in the diversity of how someone looks. Which I think it's so interesting that you're pointing out that they think women all think the same and that blacks all think the same and Hispanics all think the same. It's so comical because when you point that out, they have to be thinking to themselves, no, we don't. And they're like, oh, so like, how do we get this done? What, what? So he's pointing out flaws in our reasoning. We just want to get more people of color on our board and a few women. How do we get this done without getting anybody on there who's a conservative? Like, <laughs> that's, that has to be what they're thinking, right? They're just like freaking out because you call them on it. You got them. I got them. And, you know, the, the, the comical part, if you are an investor, please do go read my piece because... I point out that in their legal filing, which is on the Securities and Exchange Commission website, it's part of the public record, they call their investors, basically called them morons, for lack of a better word. <laughs> they would be too dim-witted to understand what the proposal meant by diversity of ideology, which is just mm. so comical. So they also have a low opinion of you as an investor. Ah. Well, you got to keep doing what you're doing, Justin. Thank you, Justin Dan Hoffrey Enterprise Institute. We'll be back with more right after this. You toss, you turn, you wake up feeling totally stressed. It's that nightmare almost everyone has one time or another, being caught unprepared for an exam, a deadline, or a performance. Actually, life's worst nightmare is about not being ready, and it's reality. Jesus described a man who had been all about himself, who was totally unprepared when God said to him, This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Now for each of us there will come that day when God says, It is over. And that's why the Bible says, Prepare to meet your God. The only way to prepare is to get rid of the sins that will keep you out of heaven, and no religion can do that for you because only Jesus died to satisfy the death penalty for your sins. 
You can't afford to let other things crowd out Jesus any longer. You can't keep hoping that you are basically a good person and that will be enough. You need Christ in your heart. If you want to learn how to have that type of relationship with Jesus, call 888-NEED-HIM or go to chataboutjesus.com. There's a particular reason why there is a Back to God radio show. It was about four years ago, God called me out of the pulpit and said, Dexter, I need you to go tell my people it's time for them to get back to God, back to my morals, back to my values. This is the thing that you're supposed to do simply because you belong to the Most High God. It's the least that you can do for a God that loves you the way that He does. Time to get back to God. Weekday afternoons at 4 Central on Urban Family Talk. Fellow Americans and all of our friends, join me nightly right here on Urban Family Talk. DCL Bryant Show, 7 p.m. Central as we build the bridge to conversation throughout our great nation, the greatest nation on the face of the planet, the greatest success story the world has ever known. That'll be America, 7 p.m. on Urban Family Talk. I'm Hank Weinblum with your Word of the Week. We had several nominees. Trope was one. Several House Democrats called the response reminiscent of anti-Semitic tropes. Another was avert. The border security deal to avert a government shutdown. But due to surprising unforeseen events, we're going with... I'm going to be signing a national emergency. Actually, this event was not surprising and widely foreseen, but it's being hotly debated. This is not an emergency. So let's discuss emergency. The word first surfaced in 1631, though the world had plenty of emergencies before then. Anyway, emergency comes from Latin in the Middle Ages. The root is emerge. An unforeseen combination of circumstances happen that calls for immediate action. So if you declare an emergency, it's something you have to do. I didn't need to do this. But I'd rather do it much faster. Maybe we should declare a national emergency to avert tropes. With your Word of the Week, Hank Weinblum, Fox News. This is Stacy on the Right with Stacy Washington on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Congress in 1976 passed the National Emergencies Act and gave the president the authority as a result of that, to invoke a national emergency in many different circumstances, but among them for the use of military construction funds. And that was the point I was making earlier, is that if the president were to say we're going to use military construction funds to, say, increase the perimeter around a base in Bagram, around a base in Syria, nobody would even say anything about it. We have 4,000 troops on the border right now, and as a result of that mission, they need to secure those areas where they're patrolling. (laughs) Yeah, there's... uh... There's, there's so much. So I, I said at the top of the first hour that we had so much in the program for you today. And I hope, I hope it was informative and enjoyable. And I hope that people uh, got something that they can definitely, you can find some of the links and everything on the Facebook page. I was actually doing that over the break. I was putting up some of the links from audio um, that's, that's been coming down the pike here. So if you want to watch or listen to the whole audio clip that we took a piece of for the show, you can do that. Now, I have a couple more things, um, and if you, I, I want to make it clear. When Justin Danhoff came on last segment from Free Enterprise Institute, he's talking about this is so important that companies have to look at their bottom line, and so it would be nonsense for Starbucks to start, I don't know, um, uh, joining together with animal rights activists and not serving meat to their customers when some of their most popular items on their food menu are 
uh, meat-based. That would be suicide for them as a company because if they don't provide the sous vide egg bite, some other breakfast company will. Um, in fact, St. Louis Bread Company makes a little, it's a little pastry, but it has eggs in it that is not, it's not anything similar to an egg bite, but it's an egg-based breakfast item that they serve until like 10, 30 or 11 o'clock in the morning. And I used to eat that. I used to go there and buy that with a cup of coffee. And then the sous vide egg bite came out at Starbucks. And I've mentioned this so often that we have a teenager who loves Starbucks. She's a college student. And so whatever she wants to do, I'm like, I'm always down for the party. And so that ends up being something that we do. And um, so then one, one of the things that is really super important for companies, as, as he pointed out, I just want, I'm reiterating it because this is a, a concept we can also apply in our personal lives. And that is when someone is advocating for you to do something that is personally detrimental to your goals, you should always stop, pump the brakes and evaluate whether or not that person is operating in your best interest. And we can see this on every level. It might be a friend who says to you, oh, don't worry about, you know, don't, don't worry about doing that for your boss or a friend that says, don't worry about, you know, doing that for your husband. Husbands are supposed to serve you. If you're doing something to serve your husband, if you, or if your husband has asked you to do something or not to do something and your friend says, you know, isn't he always telling you something to do? First of all, you shouldn't be discussing what all is going on in your marriage with your friend. Your friends are never going to be good sounding boards for that. You pray about what's going on in your marriage um, and, and, Get yourself a mentor, a woman who's been married for a very long time, decades, someone who you could call your marriage grandma. And then instead of bouncing specific situations and scenarios off of her, ask her for advice on how to be a good wife, how to be a good mom. How have you made your marriage last so long? How do you serve your husband? Things like that. That, that, That's wisdom coming from me to you. I've been married for a while, but certainly not long enough to um, maybe be like a marriage grandma. I always joke about that. But there are women who've been married for decades who have taught me many things. And I am so appreciative of it because that kind of wisdom, as soon as you hear it and you implement it, you see changes for the better and you know you've been given something, a blessing from that person, from their their experience. That wisdom has now been passed on to you. And so I want to pass on a nugget of wisdom that's based in fact from um, people who really take the time to, um, they take the time to study what's going on with children and their development, and they take the time to make sure that parents have information that they can use. And the information that I'm talking about has to do with screen time. And I, so again, when someone's giving you advice, that's horrible. When your enemy comes to you and says, let me show you how to do X with your, you know, with your family or with your finances, it's your enemy. You don't want that. And that's why these companies should be refusing the advice of these social justice warrior activists, because as Justin said, they want to destroy private industry. They want the government to run industry. They don't want people owning their own businesses and making their own wealth. They don't want people making decisions for themselves. And they don't want what they call inequality, which is some people working super hard and attaining unbelievable outsized outcomes for themselves and other people working at a moderate pace and achieving moderate outcomes for themselves. And some people sitting around in their butts and getting checks from the government and getting nothing for themselves, nothing of value. And they don't want that. They don't want you to be able to say hard work gets you to over there where he is. They want everybody to have the same. And so this study they did. So they're, they're referring to a couple of different studies in this piece. And I want to get to this before the end of the show. We have this segment to talk about this and hopefully we maybe get to 
Um, the Democrats having no response to the Trump agenda and the man pulling the gun on the couple wearing the MAGA hats. This is about screen time for babies. So if you're a grandparent, aunt, uncle, if you have any babies in your life, when you see a baby holding a cell phone, that's not that's not what's supposed to happen. And if a baby is screaming and yelling and getting upset because they can't hold a cell phone, something has gone wrong already. And I'm not judging. So don't send me angry emails about how you disagree with what I, if you disagree, that's your right. But I'm not changing my mind about this. And this is the way we raised our kids. Our kids didn't watch any television. There was no reason for a baby to be looking at a television screen. They didn't watch any television until they were two years old because that was the pediatrician's recommendation that they have no screen time during then because the light from the screen, the light emitting diode, that, that, that kind of energy going into a baby's brain was not conducive with learning. So my husband and I watched all the television we wanted to. But no babies watched TV at our house until they were two. And then when they were two, it was targeted television watching, something that they could watch for 20 minutes or so, and that could happen once a day. And after that, the TV was off, and there were things for them to play with, there was music for them to listen to, and then there were people for them to interact with, namely myself. And as they got older, then it was playing with other kids in play dates and then we got involved in there's a program that runs here in the county and in the city where they'll have a it's a specialist she's a early learning specialist and she'll come to your house once a week and she'll show you games that you can play with your baby and your toddler using things you have around the house so a tennis ball and a muffin tin (laughs) you know and you're probably thinking oh that sounds so basic it was fantastic you can tell when a baby is learning something when they're engaged in activity and they're learning It's amazing to watch them do that. And so that's what we did. And when I say we, my husband was totally on board, but I was the one who was a stay-at-home mom with the kids, and I was the one who was there all the time. And so it was up to me to kind of set the tone. Are we going to let these babies watch TV, or are we going to talk to them and sing to them and read to them and interact with them so that they have the stimulation that they need to grow and to be cognitively on point? Not below, not behind, but developmentally moving at the pace that they're supposed to be at. So this study found that despite the advent of new types of devices in the time span from 1997 to 2014, screen time for children aged 0 to 2 more than doubled. Despite iPads, smartphones, most of the uptick in screen time came from television. In total, TV consumption has more than doubled in percentage points of overall consumption of screen time from 97 to 2014. Now, the reason why this matters is because the increase in screen time might not be the result of an onslaught of new technologies, but rather caused by changes in parental interactions because of work schedules or other socioeconomic factors. The study notes that high screen user groups in 2014, this group was dominated by boys, children with low parental education level, and low family income. The authors recommend that future research examine the association between screen time and other child development supplement measures, such as parenting style, sibling, and peer influence. So by the numbers, in 1997, the daily screen time averaged one and a half hours for children aged 0 to 2, 2.5 hours for children aged 3 to 5. By 2014, total screen time among children 0 to 2 had risen to three hours a day. In comparison with other devices, screen time allocated to television comes in the highest for that age group. In 1997, the study found on average that children aged 0 to 2 and 3 to 5 watched television for roughly 43 and 48% of their screen exposure. So 
Dylan Collins, who's the CEO of children's tech company Super Awesome, emails that this study stopped measuring viewing habits after a pivotal switch occurred in the media diets of young children. So he's saying that they're declining, children are declining in watching television because they're watching YouTube videos that they want to watch. Even babies are watching YouTube videos on their parents' devices, their phones, their their tablets, etc. When I am, I, I'm, I implore you, do not discount what is happening here. It is so easy, and we've all done it. You know, your kids are restless. You got to get dinner on the table. You got to get something done, and the kids are not entertaining themselves. And so you want to turn the TV on. And on occasion, that is not going to hurt your kid occasionally. But if your regular routine is to say, sit here in front of this screen because I have to do this or I need to take a call or I'm, I'm working or whatever, then you're setting your child up not to be able to self-regulate. And that leads to behavioral problems in the classroom, whether your child is being homeschooled by you or going to a co-op or going to a traditional model school. They have to be able to sit for 55 minutes at a time and stay on task quietly. They have to complete multi-part directions quietly and efficiently on their own. And they have to be able to self-regulate without acting out or being noisy or uncontrollable. They have to be able to control themselves. Television is a control mechanism. You can set a child in front of a television and they can focus on it. And there is a lack of activity. It basically, they're just absorbing what they're looking at. But when there's no television present and the teacher says everyone sit at their desk quietly and work on, you know, coloring this in, reading this book, whatever, and your child is only used to controlling themselves in front of a television, your child is going to be acting out and having a difficult time following the rhythm of the classroom that the teacher has set up for them. The reliance on television as a babysitting mechanism is a, it's, it's a catastrophic failure that is avoidable and children crave human interaction. I saw another piece about Peppa the pig, which I got to now go on YouTube and try to watch an episode so I can figure out what's going on because our kids are older and we don't watch these shows anymore. Uh, Peppa the pig is a British cartoon that a lot of babies watch and a lot of toddlers watch it and they're beginning to take on the Peppa the pig British accent and the parents are beginning to show their kids speaking in the Peppa the pig accent on social media and the videos are going viral. Well, what's interesting about that is that if the, you don't have, your kid doesn't have to watch Peppa the Pig eight hours a day to pick up the accent. They can watch it once a day or once a week or how, whatever the frequency is. But child psychologists are saying that the reason why kids are adopting the Peppa the Pig accent is that when they replicate it, it's so odd and unusual to their parents that their parents give them an outsized amount of attention, which then spurs them to continue to speak in the accent. So the kids are doing it for attention and the parents are really fascinated by the novelty of hearing a small child adopt an accent that is not their own. In any case, the increase in parental and child involvement that is that comes from this Peppa the Pig phenomenon is is it's a bonus. It's something fun that they can share as a memory and there's nothing wrong with that. So I'm not some fundamentalist fanatic who doesn't believe in watching television. Y'all know I have my shows that I like to watch. I always have. My kids have always had some, like they they were SpongeBob addicts when they were smaller, and they had other shows that they watched. Like um, there was some little uh, the the Powderpuff Girls. The girls like watching those. Um, they loved watching Sesame Street for a while, and Matt and our oldest was obsessed with Dora the Explorer for the longest time. In fact. That's probably why she plays the flute as well as the piano. I made her play the piano. She wanted to play the flute because of Dora. So um, I, I think everything in moderation, obviously. But when it comes to screen time, 
you have to use the wisdom that has it's it's here for you the information is here and the simplest is best with kids not only is simplest best with kids because it's easier for you as a parent but when you have young developing minds you want what goes into them to be of the highest possible quality and you can look at other people and the results that they have with their kids and you can say you know, by the way, do your kids watch TV at all? Or how do you guys handle TV during the week? And these are conversations that parents have. I remember discussing it in the, we would all stand around at pickup uh, after school and when the kids were in elementary school, if you picked up, you were a minivan mom, instead of letting your kids ride the bus, you just stand around and talk. And sometimes moms would say, oh, my kids are obsessed with this show or my kid's doing this or that, or they're upset because their, you know, soccer practice means they can't watch so-and-so. And Some of the moms, like I was in a little cabal of moms. I didn't realize we were together on it until we were discussing it, that we didn't watch TV during the week at our house when the kids were in elementary school. And some of the moms were like, well, how do you guys manage? I said, the kids entertain themselves. They have 20 minutes of quiet reading, which is a minimum every night. They have to do their exercises and their homework, little math problems and stuff. And then they can play. They have Legos. They have tons of toys. And they watch TV on the weekends. And a couple of the moms were like, that would never work in my house. And I was like, well, did, have you tried it? You, you know, do whatever you want, but have you tried it? I remember one mom telling me that they went to it and it was one of the best choices that they made because the house was much more quiet and she could hear the kids, whether she was in the room with them or in the kitchen cooking. You're going to find mechanisms and systems that work for you. By no means am I saying that is the way you have to do it. But the Bible says that we are to seek wise counsel. And I really enjoy getting wise counsel from people who've already done the thing so I can see, okay, they've done it successfully. They can tell me how they did it and I can incorporate some of what they share in what I'm doing. The screen time for zero to two-year-old children is a no-no and we ought to be really clamping down on that to make sure these kids can develop well. God bless you from the heartland. Thanks for making your home at American Family Radio. 